0: Hello and welcome to Crashing the War Party. We are back from a one-week vacation and rested up and ready to face the storm generated by Washington's hot air colliding with the Cold War zeal that pumps so methodically through the foreign policy establishment in this town. In our next segment, we will be talking to Cato Institute foreign policy analyst John Hoffman about Biden's hypocritical human rights policy when it comes to Egypt, but first, let's talk about Biden's hypocritical human rights policy when it comes to cluster munitions and weapons of war that are a proven deadly menace to civilians. Cluster mu- munitions are airdropped or ground-launched weapons that release a number of smaller submunitions intended to kill enemy personnel or destroy vehicles. They were developed in World War II and have been used frequently in combat, including the early phases of the current conflicts and war. The recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. The U.S., Russia, and Ukraine have refused to join 123 other countries in signing on to an international convention on the weapons banning them. Instead, the DOD formulated a policy back in 2008 that said it would reduce its cluster bomb failure rate to under 1%. Failures, quote-unquote, mean that unexploded bomblets lay like death traps left behind on battlefields. They look like little metal balls and children tend to pick them up out of curiosity, for example, and um, blow their limbs off. But sadly, even the 1% policy has already been changed by the DOD. So what's going on now? Earlier in the Ukraine war, the Biden administration studied the potential use of these cluster bombs and de- determined that they would be useful in the war against the Russians. The Russians, in fact, are already using cluster bombs, and they've been connected to at least 700 casualties, according to Cluster Munition Monitor. But the optics of use, using these bombs have stayed Washington's hand so far. Well, apparently, the Biden administration, according to reports, is seeing more benefit than risk now. With DOD spokesman John Kirby last week saying, We've always said that our security assistance would evolve as battlefield conditions have evolved, and that continues to be the case. So they are fully thinking about using these munitions now. Dan, it would seem that the more we push, for this war that is supposed to expunge the evil invader, the more we adopt techniques and strategies that not only threaten to escalate and expand the bloodshed, shed, but make us more and more complicit with the human rights abuses that we have been continue, conditioned to abhor. So, what are you thinking about this latest turn?
1: Yeah, thanks, Kelly. So it's it's very concerning that the administration is seriously considering. Uh, sending these munitions out, uh, I mean, c- Congress had put restrictions on the export of these munitions for a reason, because they are, as you as you explained, inherently indiscriminate weapons. They're they're designed to to target anyone in a given area, and and also when it leaves behind those bomblets, as you explained, uh, it it poses a a persistent threat to civilians for years and decades to come. There will be if if these weapons are used by the Ukrainian side, uh, there could be Ukrainians killed by their own weapons ten or twenty or thirty years from now, uh, and and they will also be casualties of this war. Uh, and so it's it, it's not just a question of, of U.S. hypocrisy, although obviously that's a that's an issue too, uh, where we condemn the Russians for using these things and then turn around and, and suggest using them on our side or on the Ukrainian side. Uh, but but it is in fact the the real danger that it poses to the Ukrainian people uh, that is that makes it such a terrible idea. Um, but then there are other considerations as well. If we if we want to talk about uh, standing up for the rules based order, you can't do that when you are thumbing your nose at an international treaty supported by as you said 123 countries, including quite a few of our NATO allies, uh, and because our NATO allies are are. are uh, on board with this treaty uh, many of them are going to have real problems with the u.s providing these weapons to ukraine uh, because they they don't they, you know they are clearly opposed to the transfer and use and stockpiling of these weapons and, and their right to be opposed uh, th- this is one of those issues where the u.s is not on board with an international treaty and it ought to be we we should be a party uh to the cluster to the convention on cluster munitions uh, and we should be getting rid of our stockpiles, uh, rather than debating over whether we should send them somewhere. So it's it's very troubling that this has come up, and I I hope that the president doesn't actually go through with it and and send these weapons, because uh, as as Daryl Kimball pointed out in a really great analysis this week, uh, he's the uh, executive director of Arms Control Association. He was writing for Just Security, explaining uh, just how counterproductive and and undesirable sending these cluster munitions to Ukraine uh, would be. And uh, to say nothing of the, the moral implications where you're, you're using a weapon that is inherently indiscriminate. And so it is, it is guaranteed, basically guaranteed, to cause the deaths of innocents, wow. either now or in the future. And so, so that's why it, it is unacceptable uh, that they're, they're even debating this, because the, the usefulness of these things is, is greatly exaggerated. Uh, in fact, the reason why the Pentagon stopped using them uh, in our own wars is that they created hazards for our own soldiers more than they did anything to anyone else. Uh, and indeed, during the Gulf War, both landmines and cluster munitions created hazards that had to be uh, evaded, and so troops right. had to to move way out of their way uh, to make sure that they didn't run into them. And so, it's they're not actually that useful either uh but but even if they were as useful as some of their advocates claim it it would still be wrong to use them
0: yeah and i and i understand that there's an effort afoot on the hill uh to push for some sort of resolution or amendment to uh the ndaa which is the national defense authorization act um, to condemn the use of these cluster bombs for ukraine and i i talked with eric sperling who is a friend of the show. He's been on the show. Um, they are pushing this amendment on the Hill right now. And they're, partic- they're they are finding, um, some support from Republicans, believe it or not. Republicans who are already inclined, uh, to, dis- to push back against the war policy in general in Ukraine, but really pressing Democrats, Democrats who have long been advocates for banning mines and cluster music, munitions and have been traditionally anti-war, they're putting their feet to the fire saying, you know, you if, if you have been against these weapons of war in the past, have if, if you have been in support of a more humane uh, foreign policy, uh, human rights, um, you know, civilian against civilian harm, then you're going to have to come out forcefully. And, you know, uh, from what I understand, it's, it, it's, it's putting Democrats into a, in a quandary, uh, because there is such support, uh, left of center for Biden's war policy that coming out for anything that might seem to be diminishing support Uh, For that policy, uh, they are a little wary of that, and um, so I don't. I don't know what's going to happen. I do. I do find it quite hypocritical. But then again, you know, we are in an era right now, and an administration right now that is blatantly hypocritical about human rights uh, and civilian rights. Uh, We just saw the nomination of Elliot Abrams, uh, notorious war criminal and neoconservative. Uh, Biden just nominated him to a public diplomacy council, a bipartisan group in which he had to had to nominate a Republican. But of all the Republicans uh, in the Washington orbit, he nominates somebody who is connected not only with Iran-Contra but uh, civilian massacres in uh, Latin America uh, due to Reagan's uh, counter-insurgency uh, policy. Um, back in the eighties and all through uh, the Iraq war. And so we're looking at a you know, an administration here that, that says one thing on one side of its mouth about um, human rights and then and, and does others, including floating this idea of giving cluster bombs to Ukraine. We'd like to welcome to the show today John Hoffman. John is a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute. His research interests include U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, Middle East geopolitics, and political Islam. Hoffman's work has been featured in a number of academic and policy-oriented platforms, including foreign policy, The Washington Post, national interest, Middle East policy, and responsible statecraft. Uh, He was included in the inaugural cohort of the 40 Under 40 Award provided by the Middle East Policy Council for furthering U.S. understanding of the Middle East. Welcome to the show, John.
2: Thank you for having me, Kelly. And thank you, Dan.
0: Sure. I mean, you had this great article that just came out in Lawfare called 10 Years After Coup, the U.S. Still Supports Tyranny in Egypt. Um, Wonderful piece. And I'm so glad that you raised these issues. I had been writing quite a bit about uh, the, the military coup and um, the uprising in, in Egypt at the time and had been pretty disenchanted uh, with the US response. To the democracy movement not in 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 Egypt, but also what happened after Morsi was deposed by the Al Sisi regime. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about why you wanted to explore this uh, particular anniversary and what you think Americans need to know about uh, the current administration, the past administration. And it's policies in Egypt. It's hypocrisies on human rights, current human rights issues there. Um, why did you think it was important to raise this now?
2: Yeah, of course. I I think the the main emphasis behind the piece was, you know, nowadays, you know, we're so uh, in the you know Middle East policy and Middle East studies community, so overly fixated on the Gulf. You know, I, I think it, it, you know. I really wanted to bring to the forefront. You know, kind of neglecting you know this country that the United States gives 1.3 billion annually to uh and you know how we are effectively underwriting Sisi's tyranny within Egypt you know we've seen repression inside Egypt reach you know new record heights we've seen Egypt engaging in destabilizing regional behavior we've seen uh Sisi and his in uh, the military bringing Egypt to the verge of economic collapse And this is all, you know, while receiving 1.3 billion in USAID, a series of arms sales. And, you know, I wanted to highlight what Biden's campaign promises were, where, you know, he said verbatim, you know, he was going to end the blank check for, you know, quote unquote, Trump's favorite dictator who, you know, Trump referred to LCC as his favorite dictator. But in actuality, you know, from a policy perspective, we haven't seen uh, any policy change. And what we've actually seen is that the Biden administration has approved more weapons sales to Egypt than the Trump administration did. So, you know, just wanted to kind of highlight this. You know, we talk a lot about how Biden, you know, retracted on his promises regarding Saudi Arabia, but he also did it on Egypt.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to go back a, a bit, because I I want to make it clear, or at least, um you know, for our listeners, exactly the, the timeline that we're talking about here, um, the Arab Spring in Egypt resulted in the overthrow of the uh, Mubarak presidency. There was a absolute popular uprising against the regime there, the corrupt um, regime, autocratic regime. That ended up with the um, ascension of the Islamic or uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and the Morsi administration. That lasted how long, John? Very, like. Six about, months, a <laughs> about a year. About a year.
2: Yeah, yeah, not, not, not even a year. Yeah, in which,
0: yeah. In which democratic supporters, uh, the protesters, had become quickly disenchanted with Morsi and his policies. Uh, we don't have to get into the intricacies of what happened there, but the the military had, you know, led by Al Sisi, took advantage of this and staged a coup, overthrowing Morsi, throwing him in jail. And taking over the country, uh, and then displacing all of the democratic movements that had existed during the Arab Spring in Egypt, and basically not not even just pushing them underground, but destroying the, the democratic movement there. And I thought what you had met, you know you had talked about in your article was that the United States had been very tepid you know in its support for the arab spring writ large um but then after the coup, after the coup refused to call it a coup and had ma- maintained the support of autocratic control in egypt because that's what it had been used to doing that's how it had kept quote unquote the peace in the middle east And particularly in in Gulf countries as well, by supporting autocratic regimes over democratic movements, which obviously leads to your conclusion of hypocrisy, whether it be in the Trump administration or the Biden administration. So I just, I wanted to set that table for the listeners so they kind of get a sense of how you, you got from point A to point B, but also it illustrates that not much has changed in that entire timeline. That Obama uh, came out big with a lots of human rights talk, uh, and uh, Trump was actually just more bald in his support for autocrats. But Biden, not so different, uh, to the point where they're, we're still giving them all sorts of, of military aid. You know, and, and there are movements in Congress to try to stop it, but they don't seem to get anywhere.
2: No, absolutely. And and I think what you mentioned about the this continuity between administrations is is most key, because whether it's Republicans, whether it's Democrats, you know, regardless of who's in office, you know, there's this underlying commitment to this myth of authoritarian stability in the Middle East. And you know Egypt, being the world or being the largest uh, Arab country in the Middle East, you know, is kind of the epitome of this myth. The United States believes that in working through autocrats, you know, autocratic rulers, this is the best way to advance U.S. interests. But as I kind of point out in the article and have written before, and have talked, you know, I've written in responsible statecraft before. You know, this idea itself is is flawed because no autocratic regime is inherently stable. They're inherently unstable. And, you know, what we're seeing in Egypt is is really the epitome of this, where the policies of El-Sisi's government and, you know, the policies, too, of of Morsi's government when when he was in office, uh, you know, these anti-democratic policies, these illiberal policies are, at the end of the day, Fueling the grievances that lead to mass unrest, that lead to at times radicalization, and you know it's it's these policies that are inherently unstable.
1: I don't, Thanks for coming on the show, I, you know, and I, I agree entirely. Uh, the the continuity, we, continuity we've seen across administrations uh, in in Egypt and in other parts of the region uh, have been uh, very discouraging to see, uh, especially when we we can see how they're making conditions so much worse uh th- for people in the region and and also are, are ultimately harming u.s interests as well uh well, one of the things we've seen with the biden administration is that their so called back to basics approach to the region is essentially embracing all of the old policies of their predecessors uh and and really offering nothing uh different from what uh, what has come before and and one of the things that we're seeing that with is the embrace of Trump's normalization deals involving Israel. Uh, you wrote about this uh, in the Hill uh, a couple of weeks ago, talking about the, the big push that Biden is making for Israel Saudi normalization. Uh, and, and you say uh, the U.S. has little to gain and may incur large costs by trying to broker an Israel Saudi normalization. So, what are the potential costs for the U.S.? Why why should the Biden administration stay away from this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think this push by the Biden administration is is, for lack of better better words, very very bad. Um, I think you know this is detrimental to U.S. interests because, as I kind of explain it in the piece for the Hill, Saudi Arabia and Israel are already aligned. You know, they they have a commitment to the overall status quo in the Middle East, the anti democratic status quo, the you know the regional balance of power. They're they're, they're very on the same page with all of this, but. MBS knows that the United States is kind of scrambling and fumbling with its Middle East policy, and he knows that Biden is kind of desperate to pull off what you know he perceives and what uh, Brett McGurk and others perceive as a quote-unquote victory in U.S. Middle East policy, which is getting Saudi Arabia to sign on to these accords. But MBS you know, knows this is a card he can only play once. You know, you can only— Broker a deal with Israel once, so he is looking to get the absolute max concessions that he can. And the two big ones are one cooperation on the civilian nuclear program in uh, Riyadh, and the second one is more concrete U.S. security commitments to uh, to Saudi Arabia. Now, uh, there's you know not a lot of information you know about whether this is a Formalized, you know, treaty, you know, or is this, you know, just more, you know, increased weapon sales to, to Saudi Arabia of you know particular technologies that we've typically been hesitant to sell them? Who knows? And I think that that question of who knows is the most dangerous part because you have Biden and the administration pursuing this deal, these backdoor, these backroom negotiations without any, you know, public discussion about this, no public debate. Congress is in the dark. I did uh, last year, last summer, a piece for foreign policy looking at this um, when there were rumors that the Biden administration had extended a draft proposal to the UAE, you know, in, in the wake of, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all of the UAE's policies. And I was able to interview a couple of people on the Hill anonymously, and they all said there is absolutely zero transparency. Nobody has been made aware of any of this. Um, So, you know, that to me is striking. And I think if the United States were to pursue some sort of formalized security guarantee with Saudi Arabia or the UAE, I think it would be one of the most disastrous moves in US foreign policy in the Middle East. And if it happens this year, I guess you know the irony isn't lost that it's 20 years to this year of the last worst terrible foreign policy decision in the Middle East, which was the invasion of Iraq. So it seems like the United States just never learns when it comes to these things.
1: Right. Well, and a, and a more formal security commitment to the Saudis uh, would end up uh tying the US to them, end up implicating the U.S. in in their wars, uh if they choose to wage them, uh, and you know, possibly even dragging us into them. Uh and, and so yeah, I, I agree it would be it would be a phenomenally bad thing uh for us. And and of course, uh as we know, th- one of the other casualties of these normalization agreements uh is is the Palestinian people. These are the people who are being uh shunted to the side, ignored, uh, and then... uh well, while the Israeli government engages in even more uh, repression of them uh while in washington the, the debate is over how can we help to to reinforce this and, and entrench it even more by making these deals with various authoritarian clients and uh, so it's 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 really uh disturbing to see how how popular these normalization agreement deals uh are in Washington when when there, there are clearly so many downsides, both for us and, and for, uh, for the Palestinians. Um, and so w- what do you think is driving the Biden administration to make this such a priority uh, in their approach to the region? What, what do they think they're going to get out of it? Uh, maybe, you know, maybe just thinking in terms of, of what Biden or the administration will get out of it, not the U.S.?
2: So I think, you know, the Abraham Accords themselves have become the new guiding rod of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And I think, you know, the Biden administration is uh, the, the approach of the Biden administration to the Accords is kind of twofold. One, I think. In a, it that biden and mcgurk and and them think or believe wrongly believe that this will somehow benefit biden domestically leading up to the 2024 elections. I think, you know, he wants to pull off some sort of big foreign policy win. But when you look at the Democratic Party, you know, the the overwhelming opinion has kind of shifted towards the the Palestinians. You know, this this is not going to pull anybody to vote for Biden who wasn't already going to vote for Biden or, you know, who was already going to vote for Trump. You know, if it comes down to Biden, Trump in 2024. So I think it's a miscalculated uh, uh move regarding, you know, elections and this idea of a quote-unquote foreign policy win. But I think also it's a broader fundamental misunderstanding of US foreign policy in the Middle East and what our actual interests are. And you know, US foreign policy in the Middle East for decades has been rooted in really two foundational pillars. The first is unwavering support for the state of Israel. The second is this myth of authoritarian stability, you know, that these Arab autocrats are the best way to advance our interests. The Abraham Accords, you know, in my opinion, were largely a mechanism to merge these two pillars into one. And, you know, by creating, you know, supposedly creating a more unified approach to the region, a more unified uh, regional framework through which the U.S. can advance its interests, but when you take a step back and when you look at the, these actors that are part of the Accords, uh, when you look at, you know, what their actual policies are, you know, these are detrimental to U.S. interests. You know, this, the Abraham Accords themselves represent a very top-down mechanism designed to preserve the status quo in the region. You know, this, the Accords advance the interest of political elites in the Middle East. And, of course, as, as you mentioned, Dan, you know, the – Party that is always repeatedly left out is the Palestinians. You know, even though the the Abraham Accords are presented as a mechanism to advance "quote unquote" Middle East peace, uh, the what they're ultimately designed to do is completely sideline the question of Palestine while Israel continues to, you know, wreak havoc in the occupied territories. I mean, just look at the past couple days in Janine and, and these other areas. I mean, this is, uh, you know, and. This is all while the United States is continuing to try and expand the accords, and they're doing these, you know, uh, atrocities, and it, it's it's really unfortunate.
1: Um, I, yeah, I and it's, it's been very uh, disturbing to see that as well and it's been unfolding. Um, and so, uh, imagine if uh, if you would uh, suppose that you were in Brett McGurk's place. McGurk is out, and, and you're in advising uh, this administration, uh, just suppose, uh, what would you recommend that they do instead? Instead of doing these, uh, these normalization deals, instead of backing all these clients to the help, what, what should we be doing
2: instead? I think on, on day one, what, what I would do is you know, call for an end to arms sales, call for an end to military basing in the region. You know, The United States needs to come home. Uh, In the Middle East, uh, less is more. It's a a region that just does not hold the strategic interest that so many in Washington think it does. And I think a de-exceptionalization of the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East is the first step and the first necessary step towards a de-exceptionalization of U.S. foreign policy and a you know, re-evaluation of American primacy abroad, a reevaluation of our strategy of liberal hegemony, whatever you want to call it, that has been so disastrous for US interests. And I think, you know, that would be my day one is is, you know, the Middle East was ground zero essentially for the liberal hegemonic project. And it's in the Middle East where reforms need to happen first or else there is absolutely no chance the United States will be able to adapt to, you know, whether it be events in Eastern Europe or Taiwan or what have you. You know, the Middle East is kind of the first place restraint needs to happen.
0: I know we're running out of time, John, but I just want to ask you one quick question. Um, you know, talking about uh, de-emphasizing, uh, deprioritizing the Middle East, has the Ukraine war and the hostilities with China over Taiwan changed any of that dynamic? Do we see or do we sense that the Biden administration is a little more inclined to start letting go of of the Middle East, or conversely, maybe getting a little nervous that they're losing their influence in the Middle East to China? to Russia, to, you know, inter-party dynamics there, um, and might start dig- digging in again because they don't, they don't want to lose any of the control that they have had over uh, the last uh, decades.
2: Yeah, I think the second point you made there is is ultimately what's happening. I think the United States, you know, Biden and McGurk and Sullivan, you know, they're viewing... What happened in Ukraine, you know, tensions with Taiwan and also the growing, you know, the expanding footprint, excuse me, of of Russia and China in the Middle East as a threat. They're viewing this very much through a Mm zero-sum matrix. And I think that in doing so is not only harmful to U.S. interests, but it risks the Biden administration doing things like brokering Saudi-Israel normalization while offering all these concessions, you know, for them to do so. It, It risks them doubling down on failed approaches in the region And I know, you know, Quincy, you all have done some really great work on this. Trita uh, has done some articles on this, you know, by viewing the return of Russia and China to the Middle East through this zero sum lens. It neglects how, you know, if navigated correctly, a, a return of multipolarity to the Middle East, you know, could be a net benefit for the United States and actually an opportunity for us to divest from a lot of the failed policies that we've pursued. So, you know, I think by continuing this kind of Cold War logic and now applying it to China, you know, we risk just doubling down on all of the failures of the past couple decades. And, you know, if it results in a formalized security agreement, then formally committing to those failures.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your insights on this and would love to have you on again.
2: No, absolutely. Thank you both so much for having me on.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.